You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we look at the flu shot. Fewer kids are getting vaccinated for flu season, and that might actually pose a bigger problem for the older folks around them, like their grandparents. Also, after some severe whiplash in recent months, it looks like home buyers are about to catch a break. And the USDA is releasing its food guidelines soon. But if you're waiting for a warning against ultra-processed foods, you might be waiting a while. But first, let's begin with the humanities and social sciences. Their popularity in the U.S. has been waning in recent years. Bill Falls is dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Vermont. Earlier this year, he told a local television station that the school has trimmed its budget, letting about 5% of their full-time professors go, and transitioning others to part-time. The concern that folks have had about taking away from the humanities maybe maybe gets confused to think that somehow we don't value the humanities or don't want the humanities to thrive. I think it's just because of this shift in, in student interest. It is a shift, he says, that started to show up back in 2010, as many students focus on STEM fields with skills more directly applicable to their careers. But perhaps the humanities and social sciences have failed to train students to be critical thinkers. And that may be where artificial intelligence comes in. We get more on this with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Allison Schrager, who covers economics and is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Allison, why do you say in your column on the Bloomberg Terminal that the arts are no longer teaching students to be critical thinkers? Well, I mean, traditionally, you know, you would read the great books, you would get this very sort of like great nuanced view of history. Um, But it it seems like more and more that, I mean, at least what what we keep seeing coming out of universities is a simple, more reductive view of the world. Um, And, you know, that also just doesn't really sort of ask the big questions and come up with a sort of a way of understanding very complex issues or really a great understanding of history. Uh, It seems like from definitely what we've been told or my friends who teach in the humanities, they people, you get people, they've sort of gone away from that, taken sort of a different view. Some call it postmodern. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different viewpoints of history. That's certainly a valid one. But the problem is when it takes over, you don't really sort of get those critical thinking skills of seeing different problems from different perspectives. And it looks like that not only is enrollment in humanities dropping, but more Americans are actually questioning the value of a college education. Yeah. And everyone keeps saying that that's because um, students just, you know, college has gotten a lot more expensive and they want to get value for money. They want to go. They want to study something that will give them a job right out of school. And I think there's a lot to that for the decline. But I think it's also worth asking is, are the humanities also not doing what they're supposed to? And students don't want to show up for a class and be lectured about their professor's political opinion. They actually do want to sort of like have a better sense of knowledge and truth. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons we've lost sight of why the humanities is actually very valuable. And actually, I think are going to be more valuable than ever for the way the economy is changing. Let's get into that. This is where AI comes in then and changing of the economy. How does that fit into this puzzle and make humanities maybe more valuable? 
Well, I mean, no one knows what AI is going to mean for the labor market. There's a lot of doom and gloom. So I'm just going to rely on, I, I was, I think I mentioned to you, I have not actually taken a lot of humanities in my mm-hmm. own education, um, but I did take a lot of economic history uh, just because I went to college in Scotland where they make you do that. And so I, I, I did study a lot of the industrial revolution and what that did to labor. So I, I'm going off my own history education of what I think could happen with AI. And what we found in the industrial revolution is labor did find a way, but the it found the way if you managed to work with the new technology rather than be replaced by it. And so when it comes to artificial intelligence and it can do thinking, you know, you want to be someone who can really think well, so you can complement that. Like, you know, you could, I use AI right now, and I'm sure in the future, there'll be more as like almost like a research assistant for me, myself, you know, it, it sort of digs up stuff, but I still am as a critical thinker, then think, all right, given this information AI has given me, I take it to that next level. So critical thinking skills is a great complement to AI. And if you just sort of have this very reductive, simple view of the world, well, then, you know, AI can do what you can do. So we really need to be thoughtful thinkers and like just sort of learning vocational skills in college. Those are the skills that are going to be replaced. So we really want to learn how to think well and how to think critically and how to especially people skills, how to get along with people, different ideas, how to weigh different arguments. I mean, this is really what you're going to learn, have to learn how to do to thrive in the new economy. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Allison Schrager about how AI can help make humanities degrees more valuable. And Allison, let me see if I can sum up what you've just said. I want to make sure I'm following you here. The student would eventually be competing in a way with AI. So they'd have to be critical thinkers in a way artificial intelligence cannot be. And that gives them the skill that is more marketable, something that AI doesn't offer. Yeah, I mean, everyone who is an AI enthusiast tells me AI will be doing critical thinking. But um, from what I understand, at least for large language models, and maybe things will change, um, it's really good at taking a lot of sort of existing information and sort of finding sort of the most common argument with that. Um, and so, I mean, that's useful. That gives you a lot. But when it comes to sort of coming up with novel information or sort of being faced with new information, I know from my own work with statistics, it's less good for that. So while it's valuable and informs you, really being able to think critically, how to really sort of understand different arguments and where they're coming at you and how to synthesize them actually becomes really valuable. And AI is super helpful, but actually doesn't replace you. Is critical thinking just too hard? I mean, how did we get here to the point where critical thinking isn't valued or isn't taught? Well, it is hard. And it's really, I got to say, I mean, I I did a PhD, so I I got pretty, I guess, advanced thinking skills. Um, And I found the process very unpleasant. Um, (laughs) It's terrible. I mean, it's it's upsetting as well for college students of all ages. It always has been. And I mean, I think this is an issue. It's not just that the the curriculum gotten less critical. It's also gotten less rigorous because, you know, most ideas you have when you're young are kind of bad and stupid or derivative. And, you know, you need professors to tell you that like, yeah, like a gazillion people said that about Plato with the first time they read it and they're wrong. And here's why. And that's unpleasant to hear. Um, I I, I could tell, I could remark on my own education, how upsetting it was to be told my ideas were derivative or not very good. Um, But that's how you get better. And I feel like, you know, the humanities are supposed to be the tough ones where like, guess what? You're kind of dumb. Here's how to think better. And I think there's a reluctance. I I noticed when I've teach to sort of be direct with students about that now. A reluctance to be more direct with students? 
Yeah, as I said, because critical thinking skills are very unpleasant to acquire. They're incredibly valuable, yes. and, but they're hard to teach, and they're even more unpleasant to um, acquire. And I feel like, you know, humanities are uniquely positioned to impart that, but just not really doing that work anymore. Is this a U.S. phenomenon, or is this something we'll see globally? I think it's global. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am I'm. said I went to a, a university in Europe and, mm-hmm. um, you know, from what I observe, I think it's happening there, too. At the same time, when you have uh, more Americans thinking that perhaps higher education isn't worth it, do we run the risk of going too far the other direction? Yeah, I mean... It's definitely not as worth it as it used to be, but it's still worth it. I mean, all the evidence still suggests that if you do get a good college degree, and by that, I mean, go to a decent school, do a four-year degree, it does pay off. You will not only have higher wages, but you'll have more stable wages. You have much less of an incident of unemployment. So, but I do think that the education isn't maybe as good as it used to be in a lot of ways, depending on what you study. And so, I mean, I I think we do run the risk of, you know, the U.S. I think has often succeeded more as an economy because we've also had the best universities in the world. And, you know, if we don't really teach people how to be good thinkers at our universities, then, you know, we do run the risk of people then not going to university and then it just becomes a vicious cycle. I wonder where trade schools fall in here, because we've talked before about the, the need for trade schools and how we can't just write them off. No, they're super important. and. You know, I was reading this article in The Economist about how the trades are really sort of um, uh, dominating now the labor market. And it it reminded me, have you seen a a recent episode of South Park where (laughs) it's always so present where they have like this handyman who becomes effectively the Elon Musk of this economy because he's the only one who can fix things. So uh, reading this article in The Economist, it reminded me of that. So, I mean, that is also going to be an important part of the economy. Although, to be honest, like when I talk to um, like if a plumber comes to my apartment or I do have a contractor come, like, have you seen their work? Like even they're 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 not just like dirty work anymore. Like, I mean, they also have to use a lot of skills, incorporate technology into what they do. And they also really have to be very thoughtful about what they're doing. Their work's getting a lot more complicated and technical too. So it's not just a matter of like doing a plumbing apprenticeship and then you're good to go. I mean, they've got to really engage and stay current and keep learning too. I mean, as I said, we've we've all got to learn how to be good thinkers. And I mean, doing a four-year liberal arts degree doesn't mean everyone should do it. I don't think it's efficient that the entire uh, labor force go through that. But, you know, if you are going to go that route, that's really, I think, a valuable path, too. And I think we undersell it. Allison, thank you for taking the time with me today. Oh, anytime. Allison Schrager is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers economics and is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Coming up, we're going to look at the cold and flu season and how some parents are not getting flu shots for their kids and why. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris, and we are well into cold and flu season, not just for adults, but for youngsters, too. And while every parent knows the feeling of helplessness when your little one has a nasty cough or a fever, not every parent is making sure their child is vaccinated. 
Westchester County Health Commissioner Dr. Sherlita Ambler in New York says people need to get those flu shots, even if they're tired of hearing about vaccines. I, if anyone, understands that there's a lot of vaccine fatigue out there, but we still have to work to protect ourselves and our family and everybody that we care about. Let's get more on this with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis. Lisa covers biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry. Lisa, is, does that make sense to you that there's just this vaccination slash shot fatigue and folks are tired of hearing about it and don't want to deal? Yeah, you know, I think that's certainly part of it. Uh, I think there's a confluence of issues potentially happening related to the rollout of the COVID vaccines, which um, might have made it so that people were having a hard time finding that vaccine and they were planning to get their flu shot at the same time and didn't do either if they couldn't find the COVID one. Um, But certainly, you know, we have heard a lot for a while every six months (laughs) reminders to go get some sort of shot or another. And, you know, I think people are starting to tune out a little bit. I think there's a number of things going on and I'm happy to talk about all those. Yeah, let's get into that. Why the hesitancy? What are some of the things that are going on? It's easy to kind of reflexively think, oh, it's uh, COVID vaccine driven hesitancy. That's the reason behind this flu shot um, decline in kids. And it's it's a modest decline, but it matters because kids already weren't getting vaccinated at the rate that we'd like to see them at um, because they're really important. part of protecting adults when it comes to the flu. Um, Older adults are the ones who are most vulnerable to the worst outcomes. But, um, you know, as I mentioned, the commercial rollout of COVID shots really hit the pediatric vaccines the hardest. And so parents were scrambling for weeks after the vaccines were supposed to be initially available looking for those shots. And any parent that's had their kid vaccinated knows you only want to go once (laughs) and get both shots at the the same time. So you don't have the angst of two trips and more tears potentially. And so, you know, if someone couldn't find a shot, they might not have gotten it at all. And there were some wrinkles when it came to coverage of the COVID shot initially, not all insurers had the right coding in place. And so if you went in, you had an appointment and then were told you were going to have to pay for it out of pocket, you might've decided not to get either vaccine. And then anecdotally, um, you know, I've heard from pediatricians and I've noticed this in my own community that there have just been fewer vaccine clinics. A lot of times pediatricians offices will run, you know, several weekends in a row, a flu vaccine clinic. And it's just like a mill, bring your whole family in and get the shots. And a lot of them didn't do that this year. In part, it seems like because um, there's just a shortage of healthcare workers. And so um, I think it's a confluence of things happening, but all of it kind of translates into not a great situation. Do we know how many kids so far have gotten the flu shot percentage wise and and what the goal is? Yeah. So as of um, early November, because there's a little lag in the data that we see from CDC, um, the national numbers were 36.5% of kids had gotten their shot um, last year. And this year it was 32.6%. That's the lowest in five years. Um, 2019, the trend had been overall kids we're starting to get more their flu shot more consistently. And then we saw a little leap that first year um, of COVID. I think parents fe- feeling helpless without a COVID shot were pretty good about getting their kids their flu vaccine. And we've just seen a decline since. Um, the goal always is to get 70% of the population vaccinated. We never get to that place in the U.S. <laughs> um, you know, I think we do the best which is good with older folks, but older folks also have immune systems that just don't aren't as robust even with vaccination. And so they rely on the rest of us to kind of help cocoon them from the worst outcomes of the flu. 
you were just talking about the elderly. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, the risk isn't necessarily then, from what I'm hearing you say, for children per se. It's for the spread to make sure the kids don't give it to grandma and grandpa. That's right. I mean, just like we've all come to learn very well with the COVID shots, the flu shot isn't necessarily going to prevent you from getting the flu, but but like it does actually help lower the spread of the virus. And um, kids kids are vulnerable to you know hospitalizations from the flu, just like they are from COVID. Um, but really, the biggest um, threat here is to um, you know grandma and grandpa. And so you know, folks over the age of sixty five are the ones who end up with the most hospitalizations and are responsible for you know, the majority of deaths. Um, one thing that's I always keep in mind is that there was a study that people still cite um, out of Japan that showed that the when you had a high percentage of school-age children vaccinated, you actually saw fewer deaths among older the older population. And so, you know, it, it just is, It's I, I try to think about that when I think about why it is that, you know, I take my own kid in to get her flu shot. It's for her, but it's also for the people around her. Are there efforts being made on the government level, on the school level, the local level to get more kids vaccinated? Is there a push there? I think there's always been a push and the CDC had a different um, flu vaccine campaign. They tried to change their messaging up a little bit um, this year, uh, essentially to try to get at this idea that it's not going to prevent you necessarily from getting the flu. But when you get the flu, it's not going to be as severe. And um, they I think you know, we're seeing mixed success with that. It's a complicated season. I, you know, to be fair, we've got um, COVID shots that we're rolling out, um, the flu vaccine, and then there's new RSV shots for older folks and an RSV um, preventive um, therapy for infants. And so I think just the messaging has been really um, muddled because people are trying to keep track of a lot of things. And as you know, you pointed out at the very beginning, this is coming amid some fatigue <laughs> around getting shots in general. Are there certain areas of the country that are or are not getting vaccinated? Is it demographically divided? Yeah, I mean, so I think one of the reasons that there's, you know, concern around hesitancy is because when you look at the map of the places that have dropped the most in terms of kids and flu vaccines, you know, many of them are in red states, some of them are in states where the political rhetoric around vaccination uh, of COVID has been the hottest. And so, you know, Florida, for example, which has been in the bottom uh, kind of 12 states in general in the past when it comes to vaccinations for the flu for kids. Um, but this year they saw another drop um, in their in their vaccinations. And, you know, we know we've heard that um, Governor Ron DeSantis in his presidential campaign has really been kind of hitting on COVID vaccines and initially wasn't even going to participate in some of the booster rollouts for that. And so, you know, there's worry that that's bleeding over into other um, childhood vaccinations. I want to talk about that just briefly because, you know, COVID or rather vaccination hesitancy or anti-vax, if you will, is not new. And that's been going on since before COVID. I'm wondering, though, if now that we're seeing parents more hesitant to get the flu shot for their kids, is it becoming more mainstream? It used to be such an outlier. Now are more parents sort of jumping on the anti-vax bandwagon? Where could this wind up? 
Yeah, it's really worrisome, to be honest with you. This is a thing that I've been trying to watch closely, and I think everyone is trying to see with every new scrap of data comes out, you know, what it means. Um, we saw that um, there was a drop in childhood vaccinations for kindergartners. You know, when you go into school for the first time, there's a series of shots that you need to have. And fewer kids in January when the data came out were up to date in 2022 than had been in the past, um, which is concerning. I think it's hard to unravel if it has to do with vaccine hesitancy, if it has to do with fewer people having access to health care, um, you know, it, it probably is a number of factors. What does seem to be happening, they're kind of hardening into, you know, I feel really good about vaccines or I really don't feel good about it instead of there's less folks living in that gray area. Um, and so that's worrisome. And I think, you know, certainly there's things that we need to be doing to understand where the demographics and where that's happening and, and to be thinking about how to better target those folks. Bloomberg opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis covers biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry. This is Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Homebuyers have been suffering through some pretty severe whiplash in recent months. After hitting 8% in October, mortgage rates are now kind of flirting with 7%. There are some signs that sales and inventory are picking up. Let's learn more about this, where this could be headed. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Connor Sen joins me now. He is a founder of Peachtree Creek Investments and has been following the housing market very closely, obviously. Now, Connor, what has changed? It's really mortgage rates. That's the the show-stopping story where when rates hit eight in October, I think a lot of people said, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to try to buy a house. I'm not going to try to sell a house. It, it's just, it's broken. And then mortgage rates just have basically crashed over the past month due to a decline in inflation, to some extent, some softening in the economy and a belief that the Fed will cut rates perhaps in the first half of next year, maybe as soon as March. And so rates have come down a lot and it happening at a time of the year when people typically aren't buying houses, maybe hasn't led people to appreciate that, but I think it sets the housing market up for a really interesting January. The U.S. housing market, though, has been defying expectations. When you think it's going to zig, it zags. Is that going to continue? I think so. And the same thing happened a year ago, if you recall, where rates hit seven in October of 2022. And that was at the time sort of unheard of. And people gave up on the housing market for the year. And then people came back in January. And a lot of people who felt like they had to buy a house, they just went out there and tried to look. And um, at the time, it was the new home market that had supply because builders had built up these big uh, inventory levels when rates were lower and they had to sell them. So builders were in a position to, to sell homes to people who suddenly needed to buy them, in some cases using mortgage rate buy downs to make the rate more affordable. And that led to the first quarter of the year being surprisingly strong for the new home market. And I think now that we're seeing some signs of loosening in the resale market on the inventory side, we could see the same for existing home sales in the first quarter of 2024. So we've seen this pattern before then as recently as this time last year? Exactly. It really is kind of an eerie Groundhog Day where you see mortgage uh, purchase applications pick up in November, but people are busy with the holidays, maybe not paying attention. But you see signs in the weekly data that people are responsive to rates. And now that there's more supply, 
there's more choice for buyers. And I think, again, we're going to get past Christmas and the new year. First couple of weeks of January, people get out there and you could see a lot more activity than people think. So that's when home buyers are going to start to see or feel that break and that pressure that you've been talking about coming up in January, the first quarter of 2024. Right. The seasonality in the housing market's really gotten weird since COVID. And I think maybe part of it was COVID. Part of it just mortgage rates are so high that or went from so low to so high that it's a scramble things. And then just the general lack of inventory has made it so that if you want to sell a home, you can almost always sell it no matter what time of the year you want. And then there are so many people looking to buy that you do have people looking to buy in November, December, um, just because they didn't, they weren't able to in, in May, June, July. You know, let me clarify something with you or get you to help me clarify it. You know, we started this by talking about uh, home buyers suffering through the whiplash and now they're about to get a break. What's that break going to look like exactly? Will it be stability? Will it be affordability? What's the break they're waiting for? I think mortgage rates being lower, all else equal makes affordability better. I I think the home price conversation is tricky and we can get into that a little bit later. But I think the real one is just that there will be more inventory. And so if you've been feeling like there's nothing to buy, there'll be a little bit more choice. And that goes for first-time buyers as well as people who have a home to sell before they can buy. So if maybe you haven't been selling your home because you haven't found one you, you like, and now if you do find one you like, you can sell your own home which then creates inventory for somebody else. So it kind of just unfreezes the market a little bit. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Connor Sen about home buyers finally starting to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. However, Connor, you just said that the outlook for prices is tricky. How so? I think your rising inventory, all else equal, should put a little bit of downward pressure on prices because maybe prices held up this year just because there was nothing to buy. And so there just wasn't an ability for prices to fall when there's always a buyer to step in whenever anything went for sale. So um, like Redfin, the online brokerage site, predicts that home prices will fall 1% in 2024. And my view is that could they fall a little bit? Sure. Could they rise a little bit if mortgage rates fall? Definitely. Um, but it's really, I think people have been looking for shelter. Think of it as, are you looking for shelter and shelter that you own? And if so, then you should be focused on, can I just secure the house I want? And am I going to pay 2% too much or too little? I don't know. I don't think you're looking at a big decline or a big rise in either case. It's really just about it should be easier to find the home you want in 2024. Let's get a little more granular with this. There was a time, particularly during and just after COVID, when people were just throwing money at realtors and throwing money at sellers. Whatever your asking price is, I'll top it by another 20 grand. And and they were selling houses. We're not seeing that. You don't anticipate that, do you? No, I don't think we're going to see big price booms like that. You might see bidding wars again, but that will be more about four people competing for one house and only one person can get it, even if I don't know if it'll be somebody will pay 10% over. Just that there, there still are still only so many houses to go around. And I think you will see more inventory next year, more, more sellers, more new listings. But buyer demand could come in strong, just sort of people coming off the sidelines in response to not just rate stability, but rates declining. And are we seeing more of the flip side of that coin? Um, sellers who are basically cleaning out a house, not really doing much with it cosmetically, not worrying about an inspection and just selling it as is and getting it off their plate. I think so. And when inventory is low, they have the ability to do that, to just waive inspections and not do a whole lot of work because they know there is a buyer. For the home even in the shape it's in 
And so, again, we'll see more inventory next year. I don't think it's going to be just a deluge, but it should be better than 2023. And sort of in my business, just the direction and the, the change is more important than the levels. So the problem had been that people weren't selling. Why are they more motivated to sell now? I mean, is it beyond just the interest rates? It's time. So, yeah, rates were low until about April, May of 2022, and then rates shoot up. If you're a seller, you think, I don't want to get in there. Um, I'll just wait until rates come down or or whatever. And then time passes and eventually you just have to sell in a lot of cases. And um, sort of the an interesting thing is one of the places where inventory is rising the most right now is Florida, as well as Arizona. And I wonder if it's because there are more retirees there. And so you do have more people just, you know, dying or having to move into assisted living. And just you have people who sort of physically can't afford to wait and they're putting their homes in the market or their their estate is putting their homes in the market. Now, you had said earlier in this interview that we've seen this before. Um, is this now the new pattern? Is this what we need to start anticipating in the next few years? Is this sustainable? I think 2023 was peak mortgage rate lock-in because you had sort of the most number of people with 3% mortgage rates that you'll ever see. And they also had had them for a very little amount of time. They hadn't been in their homes that long. So they could afford to wait a year and just not sell their home and wait for things to settle out. And now every year that passes, there'll be fewer people with those pandemic era mortgages and more people who, whether it's for marriage or kids or death or divorce, whatever, feel the need to sell. And so I think from here, inventory is likely tick up, not rapidly, but I think you'll see more supply in 2024 than you did in 23, probably more in 25 than you will in 24. And so it should get marginally better from here. So more supply in the coming year, more supply possibly the year after that. If I were looking to buy a home, maybe hustle and strike while the iron is hot? There are a ton of buyers out there who want to come in, want to find a home. And again, we saw it in the new home market this year, where I think if you bought that home in January, when builders were still looking to sell and there were still options out there, they're pretty happy versus people who waited, maybe thought mortgage rates come down, thought prices would come down. And I, I think you want to get out there before spring and there's more of awareness that, oh, rates have come down. People are looking to buy. Um, beat the crowd would be my advice to people. When you are doing these types of analyses, how long does it take for the market to sort of catch up with what it is you're saying? Well, the nice thing about housing is that there's pretty, like certainly around this time of the year, there's pretty predictable seasonality. Like even if you wanted to buy a home today, uh, it's not po- like maybe your realtor's on vacation, maybe the appraiser or some part of that chain that you need to actually secure that home can't be reached. And so you're kind of forced to wait until the new year. So I think the next three to four weeks, it's, it's going to be quiet just because you can't get people. And so um, but I, I think you will see signs of this by mid-January if I'm right. All right, Connor, we're going to wait and see if you are right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Amy. The U.S. government's next set of dietary guidelines for 2025 may include warnings against ultra-processed foods, but nonprofits say don't bet on that. There are just too many committee members with conflicts of interests. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Bobby Ghost joins us now. Bobby, first set us straight. What's the difference between a processed food and an ultra-processed food? Just cooking food makes it processed. Right. But ultra processed food is food that is that essentially comes out of to a substantial degree, comes out of a laboratory. I mean, they come out of factories, but they're they're designed in laboratories. They're designed using the the science of chemistry and uh 
um, they're brought together. And, you know, the way the U.S. federal government defines it is, is can be quite confusing. Um, if you if you have a uh, is is bacon a ultra processed food or a processed food? If you have uh, is bread uh, processed or ultra processed? Take a guess. Most breads are ultra processed foods. Really? You and I, most people don't really think of bread like that, but particularly bread that is designed to to survive for several days, which is not a natural thing in bread. Long life breads are certainly ultra processed. Long life milk is ultra processed. All kinds of things are ultra processed. With so much yeah, evidence, right. though, that all these foods are bad for you, certainly yeah. the committee would be mentioning them in these guidelines. You would think, except, of course, the committee for decades has been under scrutiny, to put it politely, for pressured by or influenced by big food, the food industry. Uh, through lobbyists, many members of the committee have been shown uh, to have conflicts of interest, uh, to have received money from big food, to conduct research, let's say, um, and, and and that has made its guidelines suspect in the eyes of a lot of people. And a lot of people who've been on the, the committee before say that they come under a lot of this pressure. Part of the problem is that the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, uh, these guidelines come out from the USDA and the Health and Human Services. But the USDA's primary function is to try and promote the product of American agriculture, uh, uh, you know, to promote the kinds of uh, foods that are produced by American farmers. Um, and quite often, American farmers are producing foods for the food industry, which then takes the stuff and processes it and ultra processes it, if you like, and put it puts it on our uh, shelves and in our restaurants and our fast food uh, joints. And so there is a direct conflict of interest for the USDA itself. So then what's the point of having these food guidelines every few years? They're for nutritionists. They are for policymakers. They're not for you and me. They're not really for consumers. There's a whole separate thing that is designed for consumers, and that is called my plate. You'll remember the food pyramid. You'll sure. have seen it in your school, right? Yeah. My plate replaced the food pyramid. Instead of a pyramid, it's the shape of a plate. It's like a pie chart that shows you what proportions of different uh, things you should eat. But here's the thing. It, that, too, is produced by the government. Uh, the Obama administration, particularly Michelle Obama, the first lady, put quite a lot of her personal uh, uh, energy into it. But that's kind of fallen by the wayside. Even those who have heard of it, uh, a tiny, tiny fraction of people say they've tried to live by the prescriptions of my plate. The larger point is that most people know that processed foods aren't good. If the government is serious about getting people to eat fewer processed foods, the solution is not that difficult. You tax these foods, you subsidize the more wholesome foods. But of course, that would involve going against very powerful lobbyists and the political climate just simply does not exist at the moment for that sort of action. Bobby Ghosh is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering culture, and that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We're produced by Eric Molo. Find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal, and we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.